So welcome everyone. We'll go ahead and uh, get started a little early today, I guess, as people are starting to roll in. Um, we'll go ahead and do the intros. Uh, this is the Finding Path stream on the Art of Game Mastery. I'm your host, John, and this is my co-host, Jack, other side. <laughs> but um, we do this every week, uh, for those of you who are new. Uh, we also post our uploads after the fact. There's VODs on YouTube as well as Odyssey. Uh, there will be links for those on Twitter and whatnot uh we i believe they're also in our twitch bio as well for you to for you to grab um but yeah we do an edited down version on youtube usually within the next couple days after we go live um today's today's topic is going to be more pathfinder 2e specific than some of them usually are uh we're talking about conditions um and not only various conditions that exist but also you know how they can be used in your games and why you might want to use them instead of uh, or why you might want to use them instead of like your attack actions, for instance, by using skill actions to inflict those conditions on either your enemies or your party members. Uh, so various things there to talk about. I don't know if we'll get through all of it, but we'll do our best uh, in this next hour. So yeah, Jack, you want to kick it off? What uh, I guess, what are we going to start with? We're going to start with going over the conditions themselves and what they mean and what they do. Um Pathfinder 2nd Edition is truly refined for a game. I'm hearing a bit of feedback. Um, Are you? I will try to adjust bit. that. Oh, yeah, so, chat, if you if you do notice any audio issues, please let us know. I recently set up a new computer, so we're still trying to work through the kinks there. So if you notice any, like, echoing or reverberation or feedback, please let us know so we can fix it. Right, so Pathfinder has concrete methods for dealing with all the different conditions and they broke them up into i believe they had like four major talking points about uh, attitudes life and death stealth and like other debilitation mm -hmm. um, and then they left out like a ton of other uh conditions i want to say like at least 25 just didn't fit their bill so they had like a super strong structure going in you can see it on nethys um and yeah, they listed, I should like, pull up Nethys so we can uh, get a bird's eye view. Also, my dogs are playing <laughs> in the background, so sorry for any noise that causes. I, I don't think anyone's bothered by your dogs. <laughs> <laughs> so um, they start off with some basic things like in society with the attitudes, you've got friendly, helpful, hostile, indifferent, and unfriendly. And it's like a, a scale, and you can use Nethys as this resource to kind of just track where you sit on the social ladder with a new NPC. And just so glad they did this because it's like a finite system. Yeah. It's um, like the GM. The GM just goes, okay, I can pick and choose where they are on the spectrum and I can tell the player, like, he's looking kind of, you know, indifferent to your problems. And this is going to help the players go, I shouldn't just be dumping all of this on this NPC and expecting them to help. Yeah, I mean, I think attitudes are really, sorry, <laughs> attitudes are really uh, an innovative aspect they've added. It kind of adds a little bit of mechanics to something that's always existed in tabletop RPGs. And I really think we should probably do an entire video on attitudes or entire stream on attitudes at one point in the future, because um, I think they do a really good job of talking about how attitudes can be added to your NPC, you know, reputation effectively can be added to your NPC, NPCs. Um, but I don't think they go over too much about how the same kind of mechanics can also be targeted towards things like factions or organizations. Um, how, how these particular factions or orgs see a particular player or even maybe in the entire party. Um, or maybe other factions and organizations within the world that aren't controlled by the party. So I think that there's a lot you could really dive into there. And I think that Paizo does a great job of you know laying the foundation uh, for you in regards to NPCs. But I think yeah, as I mentioned, there's there's a lot more you can do with those rules that aren't really explicitly stated in any of the rule books that I've seen. Ah, yes, the favors in the game mastery guide does kind of lean in that direction, though. I haven't read those rules in a while. If I recall when I read them, I was like, these are cool, but they seem kind of. I don't want to say half baked, but they seem kind of lackluster, in my opinion. I feel like they're a great start, but I think they could be expanded upon a bit. Um, and using things like maybe some kind of combination between favors and NPC attitudes to kind of 
create a sort of a hybrid solution. Um, I'd have to go back and reread those particular rules to really get a. That's exactly why that needs its own video entirely. Yeah. Even like covering something like the conditions that Nethys has or Pathfinder has like outlined with life and death, you know, the dying, doomed, unconscious, wounded, all those conditions. <clears throat> but that alone can have its own, you know, own hour long talk at least just to cover all those different conditions. Right. The same would cover for like the degrees of detection for hidden, observed, undetected, or unnoticed. Um, if you're, you're going to have a rogue in your party guaranteed as a GM, if you're a player and you're wanting to play a rogue, learning stealth, it is a lot to take in all at once. There's a lot of rules for it. So uh, there are some deep dives on that. Hopefully we'll have, we'll cover that in the future. Um, but some of the main ones that they talk about for debilitation, the kind of standard, clumsy, drained, enfeebled, and stupefied, they kind of make this like, Perfect. I always want to call it a triangle, but it's actually a four point. <laughs> and then uh, your senses blinded, concealed, uh, dazzled, deafened, and invisible, which I don't know why they went so consistent or inconsistent with it, but there's a lot of conditions to get through. So we're just going to like briefly uh, mention them and kind of chug along. Yeah, a quadrangle. Thank you. It's a, uh, not to be obtuse, it's a little rhombus. Yeah, so which one do you want to start with? We got I mean, like you said, we got a lot to go through. The anecdotal uh, mentions for you know some conditions apply. Incapacitation, incapacitation trait, probably the trump card in all of these different conditions that we're going to talk about. So yeah. What do you think? About incapacitation is interesting because it's a condition that is usually applied via other conditions. It's a condition of conditions. Yeah. So it's kind of it's kind of. I hate to hesitate to use the word meta there, but it's really what it is. It's like it's a condition that is the result of being under the effect of other conditions, or sometimes other spells or attacks as well, but usually it's inflicted by some sort of condition. Uh, let me pull up. It's a rule that, as a player, you want to know right off the bat. You need to know about this. You're going to, as a spellcaster, you're going to want to know what has the incapacitation trait, and you're going to want to know this creature that I'm fighting, is my spell going to work on it? And we talked about the built-in problems during one of our last games, I think, where it kind of forces meta because you're you're wondering what's the challenge rating level of this creature? Do I need to increase my spell slot to be a higher level spell to get this spell to even work? Because with incapacitation trait, if the creature is above the uh, the tier um, for that uh, spell, then there's just a straight chance that it won't even work. Right. Um, there's actually a few different mechanisms in Pathfinder 2e that kind of allow spells to not go off. Um, and this is this is just one of them. Um, I think... I don't know if I'd agree that it's super... I think you can get away as a new GM without understanding incapacitation rules for the most part. Um, but I think as you start to get into conditions more, I think you'll find that incapacitation is going to come up more and more as you start to throw more interesting creatures at your at your uh, players. Um, I don't, I can't think of any creatures off the top of my head that. That's where the art of game mastery comes in. Yeah. Um, can you think of any creatures off the top of your head that really uh, lean on this particular condition? I know they exist. I, I definitely recall them. Actually, let's see if it mentions anything here. There's quite a few. Um, just some starting out undead that drop down the sicken trait with uh, uh, there's like some kind of nauseous gas that they they spew out. Uh, you need to know like how incapacitation works for e even just like a basic rat that has a disease effect, which is going to take you back to incapacitation. That that's actually a really good point in that incapacitation is not just sometimes a result of conditions, but it's uh, when we get into like deadly traps and whatnot and talk about hazards in general. Um, there's a lot of things like uh, diseases and hazards and things like that that will cause incapacitation or other conditions that in turn cause incapacitation. Um, so those are also something to keep in mind. Um, but yeah, Sicken's actually a really good one. Let me, let me pull up Sicken real quick. We can kind of use that as a sort of segue. Uh, oh, I have some stuff on second. It's a it's an alchemist killer. So, this is GM advice, not player advice. Um, 
you make them feel ill, then the sickened always has a value. The status penalty is like uh, your check and the DC. So you can't willingly ingest anything that includes elixirs or potions. Static for me when I speak. Huh? When you spend an action retching, you can attempt to recover, which lets you do a fortitude save to the effect, um, and you can reduce the sickness valued. Uh, on a critical success, you can reduce it by two. Yeah, I think uh, it's also important to note that it's a status effect and uh, or status um, uh, uh, penalty and not a, uh, what's the other word I'm looking for? Sorry, my mind's preoccupied by trying to fix his audio noise. Um, it's not a, it's not a situational penalty, right? Which one? Uh, sickened. It, it causes a status penalty and not a situational penalty. It is a status penalty. So it, it does stack with things like flat-footed and whatnot. So yes. keep that in mind. Um, um so yeah, sickened is... A sh an alchemist killer. Uh, they have to spend their turn. Thank you, Elois. That's the word I was looking for. Also, how does my audio sound now? Sorry to interrupt you, Jack. No is worries. It better, worse. I turned off the filters for or the uh, uh, VST for now to see if it, it's the same, huh? I don't hear less echo on my end. Oh no, he doesn't hear it. How about when we're, we're talking? Is it when Jack's talking or is it when I'm talking specifically? I'm talking. Well, that's no bueno. Let me try maybe. You want me to keep going, or are you going to cover it? Keep, keep going. I'll, uh, I'll try to fix this as we go. I'll try this. Alrighty. So I apologize <clears> again, <throat> folks. I just said new computer. Gotta love live streams. Um, so. Talked about some basic ones. Um, one of my most favorite conditions that really hit me on the head was how different sleep, aka unconscious, is in one of my other games. Um, there is a lot of rule changes that don't seem as intuitive as coming from 3.5 or from 5th edition. Path Paizo was kind of like with sleep, they threw out all of their previous rules and they kind of just built it from the ground up, which is good because it's more thorough and it has some key points that you can kind of cover about uh, your your um, unconscious if you have more no you're unconscious and have more than one HP. It's kind of like what being sleep is. So you can if you have the HP and you have the sleep condition, then you can wake up from one of like certain different following things that happens. Like you take damage. Um, you won't wake up if you take damage that reduces you to zero. I like that they felt they need to put that in there because. Seems kind of important. Um, so if you receive healing or any other natural means from resting, um, anybody shakes you awake, they have to use an interact action. Something I didn't realize, one action you can spend to just wake one of your party members. It's pretty useful if you get uh, someone uses sleep on you. More likely, the players are going to be dishing out sleep since it's a lower level spell, and they're going to be using it on your enemies as a GM. So you can have your cultists kind of shake those people awake. Um, loud noise isn't automatic. So they get to attempt a perception check against the DC of the noise for waking up. Um, or the GM can just decide that you wake up. That's uh, always an option. So I'm glad that they stuck that in there as well. To go back to what um, chat said, how to avoid sickened. Sickened tends to hit your fortitude DC, so you can fortify yourself with uh, extra constitution. You can also ret use an action to retch and mm -hmm. literally throw up and get the get the bug out of you. you. That doesn't necessarily protect you from sickened. No, but it, it gets rid of. It can help to alleviate it if um, you go back to sickened here. If you know you get to that point. Um, in fact, so, in combat, if you do get sickened, it can often behoove you to take such an action, at least attempt to uh, one or two times to try to, um, you know, ex expedite the recovery. Um, as, as, with mo as with most uh, conditions, you do you do get a chance to save at the end of your turn. Um, and if you if you make that save, then you reduce the 
depending on the condition, you might reduce this, the, the value by one or some other mechanism of recovering. Um, so using right. being able to use an action to retch allows you to expedite that by taking an extra fortitude save um, to increase your chances of overcoming the condition. So I posted in Reddit, and one of the least mentioned, but my personal favorite, is Quickened. Oh, yes. Uh, I don't know how Quickened got overlooked. Um, it's... it's a level 20 feet for most classes, something that maybe just gets, uh, as Pathfinder gets older, more and more games and campaigns will go through level 20, but almost every class gets some kind of uh, mechanic from their classes to get some kind of quickened effect. And it might just be getting an extra move action or an extra attack action, but pretty much everyone gets a level 20. Right, and um, it's it's actually a bit unfortunate that quickened isn't seen more in this game, I think. Uh, I mean, you know, you have the haste spell, you have some monster abilities that grant itself quickened, or sometimes it's ally quickened. Um, there's things like Alchemist elixirs and whatnot that can grant the quicken uh, condition, um, but oftentimes if you do get it outside of something like a haste spell, it's very transient. It's very it's only there for a round or two, um, and I understand why they did that. It does kind of having extra action in your turn is actually a really big deal in Pathfinder 2e. It really changes the dynamic of a fight significantly more so than you would think. Um, so I understand why why they don't just dish it out more. Um, but I would like to see at least a bit more ways to obtain that trait, because I think it's something well, really that's cool. That's what we're here for today. Uh, there's the Frenzy mechanic. Um, I noticed the Frenzy mechanic occurs on quite a few creatures. Mm -hmm. So as a GM, you can definitely dish out some extra quicken to kind of buff your enemies. And if you're doing the homebrew route, having a condition that sets when they're going to go into a frenzy is a great way to incorporate that extra action economy into their fighting style. I.e., if you want to give it to a creature at 10% uh, or 50% of their health, give them a boost to attack, or whenever they reach, you know, like whatever their role is in combat, if it's to, to bloody an enemy, cause an enemy to bleed, and then give them frenzy in response to that. Um, so you can make more dynamic fights. Right, and that helps from a GM side on your enemies and such, but it doesn't really solve the problem of players not having access to a lot of really good ways to grant quicken. I mean, you do have haste, right? And, it's, it's a game changer, and yeah. haste definitely is uh, you know, your go-to method. There's uh, a few items that are going to give you that same haste effect. Yeah, what, what level are the alchemist... Uh, actually, let me go back here. What level are the alchemist elixirs? I believe the first one's fairly high level um i didn't see any under the elixirs um i thought there was one type of elixir that granted quickened i mean there is the quicksilver but it doesn't actually give you quickened it uh, just uh i'll have to look into it later but um regardless uh that might if, if they don't exist that might be a good potential point of homebrew to add something like that uh, probably a mid to high high level um <laughs> Some of the heck 15 and 20 for sure. Issues. I mean, but haste is actually available as a it's a third level spell, I believe. Yeah, it's 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 fairly early on. Um, though, at that point, I think actually a lot of different traditions get it as well. But at that point, um, you're still fairly constricted in terms of the number of spell slots you have available. So you don't. I mean, yes, you can use it, but you generally can only afford to use it maybe one or two times per combat which is which keeps it uh yeah six level pc which keeps it fairly constrained i think well the the quickened action that you get from haste is also constrained since quickened um has like a an extra moniker that goes with it describing how it increases your actions normally the quickened trait gives you any extra additional action mm -hmm. whereas haste um, has a caveat. It must be a strike or a strike. Oh, yeah, exactly. That's, that's totally and true. Um, so there hasn't been any kind of like spell haste ability yet, allowing you to cast, say, two spells in one go from some kind of quickened state. No, no, Page or uh, Alias, you're not wrong. Um, 
it is you are a mid tier character technically by then I guess you're early mid tier. Um, but my point was that even at six level, you can't really afford to be dishing out haste like willy nilly to like all your party members. So I guess you could I think you can upcast it right. You can at six um, level. You can cast level, it on a group. Yeah. So that might that's actually a good point. Yeah, you could upcast it. It's I was thinking that was seventh level for some reason, but oh, it is seventh level. The Titan seventh. Okay. Yeah, so you seven. can target up to six creatures at seventh level. So yeah, I mean, when you get it, you're a bit constricted. But I guess it's only for a level at that point. You know, if you're going exp a thousand exp later, it becomes a bit more open because you can target up to six creatures with it, uh, which is generally speaking this. The party size cover most of the party so um, unless you have like a really abnormally large party in which case i've hey, never I'm played in a game with an abnormally large party well i mean we don't have even in our takasega we don't have a particularly large party we just have a lot of npc followers and the way we play with npc followers it ends up effectively being another party member so yeah it does it does kind of put snags and things sometimes but um we got a few more to go through um one condition I found while researching conditions was delay. I was like, I didn't think delay was a condition. Apparently, it's a, an option under controlled to remove you from the turn order. You take no reactions, uh, and then you appear on the turn order as needed. So if you are delaying, you What's do the, not get reactions. Delay is an action that you can take, not a not a condition. It, as I said, it was something I found while oh, researching okay, the condition. Right yeah. Something that uh, it, it, it's covered under controlled. So the 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 condition is controlled. Um I found that I believe when I was looking up confused. That one's which is the next one that I was gonna cover. So control is just whenever an enchantment effect makes you lose control of your character. I don't know if it's Nethus or my internet or what, but it's t started taking a long time to load uh, Nethus or something. You're right, there's a control condition. Actually, have, I was not aware of this one. Hold on. Someone else we have is making so many... a decision for you. Usually because you're being commanded or magically dominated, the control dictates how you act and can make use of the animal. I did my research. So... Yeah, you did. I, I had actually not heard of this condition before, or at least I didn't remember it if I've read it before. Um, uh, so today I learned. Uh, you know, so... It was just in the script. Um... <laughs> You act like I read the scripts. You know I just wing these things. <laughs> we just, just wing it. It's so much better when we just chill. Um, so we've talked about like cover and control. My favorite is confused. Does not get used enough. Oh, man. Uh, confused in any medium between uh, playing video games or other tabletop RPGs. Have you seen confused used in, I... in a setting? I mean, you... Rarely, I have, right? I mean, I've you seen need... it used in like video games and and tabletop RPGs. I very, very, very rarely see it ever come up, even even outside of Pathfinder, like even in like Five E or you know other D twenty inspired games like the old D twenty system. Uh, I I don't say never, but I rarely rarely see it used in practice. Um, I want to see more confusion. I do too. So it's a really cool. Condition. How to get confusion into your game? Guess what? It's a level four spell. So yes, mid tier range. Um, there's also Befuddle, which is, uh, it's a level one and it's only access is arcane and they, they have to critically fail on the Befuddle. Befuddle is a great, cool spell. So if you have access to that, uh, Befuddle is a bit earlier though, right? It is level one, yeah. but you only get the condition if they critically fail. Normally Befuddle does something else, right? but if they critically fail, then you get to throw on Confused on top of it. But you know, if you're, it is a level one spell. So if you're casting it at a higher level, um, you know, maybe you're level six or seven or something. And you're casting it even even as a level one spell, not necessarily as a height version. But um, you know, you're, you're if you're casting it as a higher level on a creature that's a little lower than you, you, your odds of critically succeeding are still fairly high. So it could be a good replacement for confusion. You know, if you're not quite where you need to be yet for the actual confusion spell. Um, I think the important caveat was that it's no, it's not rare. It's just okay. So only arcane casters have it. Yeah. So it's kind of just it's just hard to find. Yeah. But I mean, in general, if we're talking about conditions, befuddle normally does clumsy and stupefied. So stupefied's another fun one, though. 
it is it's the bread and butter of this game. You know, yeah. between your three major saves, um, you've got the uh, stupefied, clumsy, and uh, drained, and then of course there's enfeebled. Add those spells to your repertoire. Uh, so arcane casters, um, as well as adding in confusion to the mix. So having spell-like abilities that your players can can have access to. Inept. Like what is going on? Your internet. Oh, it's 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 actually it is searching. I don't know why. It's weird because like. The other websites are working fine. It's just Nethys is being slow for me. Nethys is predominantly slow. It's a really heavily trafficked uh, site. Yeah, but it's extremely quick for me. Anyway. Um... Oh, really? It's always slow. So um, when we do cover yeah. afflictions, though, we should cover brainworms because that causes confusion. Sorry, brainworms. Like I'm trying to get stupefied up, but I, it might be a new point at this point. Um... <laughs> So something okay. we didn't talk about when we talked about Quickened uh, is kind of the other side of it, and that's slow, right? Or slow, rather. Um, and I actually, as someone who was very much uh, taken aback by this condition in one of our sessions, I actually really like this condition. I think it's really a really fun one to throw at your players. Um it's very frustrating for them, but I think it adds a sense of, uh, yeah, bamboozle was a great uh, example of that. Um, so, slowed is basically the opposite of of, uh, of quickened. It basically takes away your actions, and for the life of me in our in our campaign, I could not get over this freaking condition, and I was to the point where I was so slowed <laughs> I literally couldn't do anything on my turn. Um, and it was, was so frustrating, but at the same time, when we beat that, beat that fight, it was so satisfying for me because like, I'm like, finally, this is over. I can move again. I can do stuff again. Um, Just remember that encounter was designed, like all the creatures were CR2. Yeah, I, I know it was very little of a counter. I just could not roll well if my life depended on it. And I kept succumbing to that, that condition. And it was actually interesting for a little context here. The condition in question, the slowed, was actually caused by some magical mud that was throughout the environment. And he had a, I think it was a golem, right? A, a mud golem or something? There was a mud golem. That threw me into the mud, like way into the mud. And I could not, and, you know, every time I moved, I would chance getting slow. So even if I, even if I did break out, if I couldn't get out of the mud, I couldn't, I would still have a chance of getting it again. So I would very rarely succeed on my save to overcome the, or to, to, to recover from the slow, but then as soon as I did, I would immediately get it again because I'd roll poorly on my, my save. So it was very, it was like, let me out of this mud kind of deal. And it I remember one point I did get out, and the creature was right there, just threw me right back in. And I was like, <laughs> <laughs> it, yeah, was, I it was so frustrating. Like I said, that frustration led to great satisfaction at the end of the counter. So well played, well played. So if you're looking to make a sand trap that's not deadly, put a cap on that depth. That way the players can only ever get to like their neck or hobbit height so they can still breathe. And mud is going to be difficult terrain to get through. If you've got something, um, I was using axolotls. Yes. And, and I was kind of running them as like magical carbuncles. And I was using the mud golem to be kind of like the inciting riot for this encounter. And it turned a, what should be a level two uh, encounter you guys were like what level seven, eight? Were you nine? Something like that. But we we approached were... that extremely poorly. Like it was the way mechanics, we approached that encounter. Door was... wrench and exactly how. So you can really use those mechanics to kind of upscale the fight. Yeah, and and that's really what conditions are designed for, right? They're they're there to as a tool to help make fights more interesting and more dynamic. Um. Real quick, as a quick segue, uh, something that came up in our internal Discord um, for one of the campaigns that Jack is running. Um, we, we have a player who's somewhat new to Pathfinder 2e and comes from primarily a 5e background. Um, and, you know, they're still trying to, like, learn their ways about the three-action system and whatnot. 
Um, and they made the realization during this clip or during conversation we had today that, you know, I don't need to spend every action attacking or moving or whatnot. And there are things like skill actions that can often inflict conditions on um, either an enemy or your some way help your comrades in some form um and i think that that's something that's often overlooked by people new to pathfinder 2e is that you know just because you have three actions doesn't mean that you're expected to attack three times or even two times like hell there's many there's many rounds in combat where i don't as if i'm playing a more support oriented character which is something you can actually do in Pathfinder 2e, unlike some other systems like 5e. Um, I don't take any attack actions at all in a, in a turn. Um, sometimes it's better to use a well, an ingenious skill action to somehow buff or provide an advantage to one of your other um, party members, maybe someone who's more targeted towards damage dealing, so that they can more likely to hit, more likely to crit, and more likely to do more damage overall as a result. Um, and I think that's something that is tough for players to grok, at least initially, because, you know, they think, a lot of times I think they think of it as, oh, I'm not shining if I don't do damage. Whereas reality, it's like, no, you're shining. You're just, you're also making someone else shine brighter. But, you know, that's not a bad thing. Like, that's, you know, the whole point of a support character. And, and a lot of classes in Pathfinder here are well suited to a support style of play. Um, so I think that if I had any advice for new, you know, players of Pathfinder 2e, it would be to embrace embrace that support, you know, style of play. Even if you are a full fledged damage dealer, it's it's some it's usually in your best interests to precede an attack roll with some kind of skill action to make your your next attack more likely to hit, more likely to crit, more likely to do more damage. Than it is to just take two attacks where you're less likely to hit, less likely to crit, and less likely to do any damage at all in your second attack or even third attack. Um, yeah, it kind of puts a whole new meaning to diminishing returns. We're so used to computers kind of arbitrarily handling that for us that we don't think about the, the minus five map, the minus 10 map. Yeah. And so when we're talking about things like slow and quickened, uh, quickened gives you that extra action. You don't necessarily, I mean, if you're getting it from haste, you need to use it for strike. You just say, my first. You know, hasted quick in action is going to be for the strike. Use your other three actions to do everything but because you have access to intimidate on your rounds, bond, bot, evangelize, all these different skills that are going to put you in a position and kind of treat your team because you're, you're, this is a team oriented game. So just like volleyball or soccer, you need to, you need to score goals. And we see that as dealing damage. And instead, you should be looking at it as assists is how we get goals. It's how we, how we win the, the game. And so when you're just doing support, you're doing an assist and all that damage that your party member is dealing because you pasted them or you set that fighter up to get that flanking before he moves in. You doing that is giving that fighter that extra damage. It's all shared. It's all right. collaborative. Yeah. And, you know, even without something like Quicken, it still often behooves you, regardless of your role in the party, to consider these skill actions when, you know, devising your approach to a turn. Um, it's definitely some. It's definitely something that takes some getting used to because it does. It can feel like uh, you know I'm not doing anything my turn sometimes, but in the reality is, you know when you look at combat as a whole, uh, both in game and out of game, it's not combat. A fight is never is rarely won by just one person. It's usually the collective efforts of some kind of team that, you know, creates the results of, of an encounter. And just because you weren't the one who swung the sword or, or you know, shot the, the gun damage. or whatever, doesn't mean you didn't, you know, help help the combat in some way. It's the same kind of thing in, in you know, I, I work in the game, the video game industry, and a lot of gamers um, and like social media and whatnot might will sometimes suggest oh this person is a um a qa person or this person is a 
uh, a project manager, right? Or something like that, something that isn't an art or programming. And they might look at them and say, they, they aren't really a game dev, you know? They, they aren't developing games. And, but really, I mean, they are. I, they may not be, you know, plucking away at keys or draw, you know, using a, you know, pencil or tablet to draw or even creating models and, and uh, Max or Maya or Blender or what have you. But they are just as much an important component to the system as uh, any other uh, team member because without a project manager, things would be even way more off track than they usually already are. Without QA, things would be way more buggy than they usually already are. So it's like everyone has a role to play, and sure, they may not be the people doing the direct effects, but they are they are collaborating in a way that increases the quality and, of the outcome. And I think that's something that people just generally don't consider, um, and I think it's something people should consider more. But yeah, that's my that's my so rant good. on that topic. <laughs> well, that's good. Um... So we covered confused. Uh, we covered uh, the team dynamics. Um, one of the most popular uh, discussed conditions on Reddit from our post was doomed. Um, doomed's another one I rarely see. Have you heard? Have you heard about doomed? Yes. You need me to explain it real quick. Okay, so it's a powerful force that's gripped your soul, calling you close to death. Doomed always includes a value, and the dying value at which you die is reduced by your doomed value. So if your maximum uh, dying value is reduced to zero, you're dead. You instantly die. And when you die, you are no longer doomed, you know? <laughs> so that's a, the silver lining, right? Yeah. How to get rid of doom? Die. In my uh, opinion, doom is one of those conditions that works so well, in particular, with boss encounters, like into scenario encounters. Because it's a great condition for adding added suspense to a fight. In a fight where you already expect a lot of players to go down, not necessarily die, but to go down, like unconscious. Um, and sometimes you might even expect that multiple times uh, for the same character in an encounter, depending on how you've balanced it. I think Doom can add an extra layer of, oh shit, there. And I think that yeah. that's... <laughs> Absolutely does an awesome thing and, and i'm a little saddened i don't see it used more often um, here's how to get it used more often in your games so there is an ancestry feat that lets you save against doom there's evade doom it's a cat folk ability mm -hmm. um, to get it into your enemies there's the enervation spell on a critical failure you you give somebody doom um, there is a quite a few boss-like creatures that have um, they're called like void shrouds or auras that mm -hmm. give you doom one. So there are liches. Um, I'm not even going to begin to uh, pretend like I know how to pronounce this word, uh, but I'm going to type it in the chat and we'll give it our best go. Um, only, I don't know, John, you're better oh, at pronouncing the things. The demon. That one. Uh, it's a CR 20. Uh, some some lower ones. There's CR 12. Tomb giant has a doom touch. There's the vanth at CR seven has a curse. Um, Really impressed with the CR7 creature, Soul Eater, and uh, the Ku Sith, which is kind of like Kate Sith, all level 7. So level 7 CR is a great time to start introducing some Doom mechanics into your combats. Yeah. They don't have to be the big bad boss. They can be, with you know the Ku Sith, it can be complementary to a very powerful you know creature that might, or person, maybe like a Fey Lord or something going to be dishing out some serious damage and possibly put you in that dying position and thus this, the q sith is going to make that dying condition much more threatening when giving out doom yeah i i think that doom on its own and like you don't want to be using doom like in like book battles i don't think that that doesn't it would become more of an annoyance at that point effect. was that it just it just won't, it just won't have the same yeah. effect it won't land the same way it's not going to i mean in mook battles for those of you unfamiliar with the term, MOOC is, is a term used uh, to de describe encounters that are there as fillers. They're there that there's no expectation that players will lose any of these, you know, against any of these creatures. They're there specifically to drain resources so that a further down encounter can be more suspenseful. And using Doomed, a condition like Doomed in a MOOC encounter is just, a, it's, just a, it's just a hindrance and a, and a pain in the ass more than anything. Um, and I don't think it adds any fun value anywhere. So I, I would urge against, uh, 
urge GMs yeah, not to do is... that, and to save Doomed is more of a sparing thing you throw in um, in your, like, scenario-ending encounters, uh, your, your big bads, maybe. Um, that's gonna, like, throw, like, you know, you know it's, it's, it's a card they have up their sleeve that isn't immediately obvious, and when it is thrown out, the players could go, oh shit, I didn't expect that. And that's what's gonna add suspense to your games. And as most GMs should already know, suspense is what creates good storytelling. So, um, Absolutely. Yeah. So let's cover in, we've covered some basic conditions. I want to kind of cover an approach as a game master to conditions. Um, nothing feels worse than like a GM saying no to an incapacitation trait because suddenly the creature is immune. Yeah. Uh, and that's where this game mastery kind of comes in is that uh, GMs need to be prepared to deal with these kind of consequences for their players. And uh, I think it helps improves like your keys to success. You want to reward your players when they dish out conditions. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like that concept of wanting to create new content. And then as soon as somebody does, people take it down. And you're like, there's um, all that good content. You want to reward your players for using incapacitation traits. You don't want them to just be pigeonholed into dishing out damage. Right. Me personally, I homebrew a lot of monsters. Um, sometimes I take existing monsters and tweak them a bit. Um, but I try to very rarely grant immunities to conditions to monsters unless it makes perfect sense thematically. Like, uh, you know, a creature might really make sense not to be sickened. Uh, I, would, I would zombies, say what right? you're trying to say is like some of the family traits on creatures mm -hmm. and aberration is, you know, has like a defined kind of purpose yeah. and it should be immune to certain things and an inevitable is mechanical. It's right. not going to bleed. You know, there's there's certain things that yeah. just... And I think that in those cases, either part of your characters probably already know that information, just being denizens of that world, or... They could eat, you know, it'd be, an, it'd be a recall knowledge check that would be easy enough to pass where it wouldn't be a big deal. Though we can get into players not liking to take recall knowledge checks as much as, you know, for a long time. But I think that they are a useful tool, um, especially for something like a ranger or a, uh, a druid, for instance, um, for like using a nature check to recall knowledge on properties of a particular creature that falls within their, their domain. Um, so I... For things like that, I think it's fine, but just throwing immunities to conditions on creatures willy-nilly, I think is something you should avoid if possible as a game master. Because like Jack said, agree. you really want to reward players for getting creative with their skill actions, so, with their spells, um, things like that. So. so how to reward your players, let them get those incapacitation traits off, let them win, that's half the point of the game. Mm -hmm. In order to build up that uh, muscle in your body to say yes is that you should be delivering cruel monologues of defeat. Mm -hmm. When you're designing that creature, that boss, that boss is going to lose. That's Unless you're deliberately designing a TPK, yeah. <laughs> you want that enemy to lose. So be prepared for that creature to give a monologue about how they're losing. You need to act out how bad it hurts when the players silence the caster boss. The boss relies on his spells, and they get off silence. Mm -hmm. Now the boss can't do anything up to it's, you to kind of deliver that so that the players can feel like ah oh, this enemy is is truly dumbfounded they're shaking their fists they're angry maybe they get on their knees and plead and and you know you change the whole combat around like they've won so now it's a matter of how they're going to handle that yeah this is a this is something i'm admittedly trying to get better at um and it's, it's not just uh you know when a combat ends i try to be very um colorful with my descriptions of each attack and how it affects things but i very often find myself uh falling into the trap of getting too far ahead of myself and like thinking further ahead in the combat mechanically and then kind of letting that colorful description fall off to the wayside like part way through the combat so i'll start i'll start the encounter where I'll, every action will be described fairly colorfully then like it'll slowly get less and less colorful and then eventually i'll just stop describing uh, turns altogether, and that's something I, as a GM I really need to work on. Um, I think that that fatigue happens to all of us, so yeah. don't beat yourself up too much. Um, but something else that you kind of alluded to um, is that, you know, if you're taking capacitation, for example, right, right, maybe a, a particular character is kind of using that as a crutch and using that a lot 
in combat, right? And various monsters, various encounters. And you know, as a GM, notice that. Keep letting him do it. Keep letting him get it off. And then one point, pull the rug out from under him. And that that <laughs> fact that it all of a sudden doesn't work is a great. It's kind of like throwing cold water on someone, right? And it's like, if if done uh, tactfully, it can actually uh, result in excellent results for the player. It like, will it'd be very satisfying. Expectations, and you're going to make a more exciting game that way because you're you're bringing it to life. And that goes the same with using conditions on your players. Uh, we've talked about letting the players hit your enemies. Now comes the hard part. Players need to be, they're going to accept these conditions whether they like it or not, or they're going to crumple <laughs> up their character sheet and walk away from the table. Um, chances of that happening are pretty slim. But how to mitigate that is uh, conditioning your players and pre prepping your players for this. So. Um, one of the best ways is to introduce a mechanic-like um, a condition in a light, easy situation. Be ready for any condition that your players don't like to target that creature with a blind, passionate rage and destroy that creature. Right. So they've seen how that mechanic is used, and then you can build upon it. Now you've hinted at it. Call this foreshadowing right. in uh, you're writing a story. So you can slowly build on it, and this allows the players to begin... Um, preparing for how to handle that ability. This might give your alchemist a chance to prepare some disease removal, right? I like that it, term, it was mechanical placebos. Love it. Mechanical placebos. So uh, you got to give your players a way out. Um, there should always be a cure. Uh, I like to permanently scar my players with a condition. Um, I do so with extreme caution. Um, it is a result. Of, it can be a result of bad planning, or the players just not focusing on their team goals, and it can cause some serious breakdown. And you can sometimes like really over-target a player, and they might, they might not, you know, it might not go over very well. It's the same concept of overhitting them with too much damage. You kind of have to like spread that damage around. So continue to telegraph your, you know, your intentions. Yeah, I mean, it's funny because a lot of the advice we have to give around conditions are actually advice around storytelling. Um, Ooh. Yeah. It's it because what conditions are really designed to do is add suspense, add excitement, add emotion to your game, right? In some form or another. Um, and this 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 goes for uh, not just enfeebling conditions, but also uh, you know when it when a you know a combat encounters getting super dire for the players, right? And all of a sudden, the, the cleric comes with a clutch buff of some sort, or, or heal, maybe. Um, that kind of boost in morale can also have a similar effect. Uh, it can really add excitement to the encounter. Um, even, even if the conditions, or the, I hate to use the word condition, even if the situation still seems dire, um, it can really, that kind of all of a sudden, oh, that was awesome, you know, that was perfect timing or whatever, can really add suspense, more suspense to the fight. Um, and I think people often forget that, you know, while Pathfinder 2E and games like it are, are ultimately games, and they are ultimately collaborative, or, uh, you know, they have, they have dungeon crawling backgrounds, and they, you know, historically they weren't, the most interested narrative experiences. Nowadays, your average game is going to have some component of narration in it and sets to some degree be a collaborative storytelling experience. So a lot of the a lot of the tricks you learn as a game master are the same kind of tricks you might utilize as an author or you know of, an, of a novel or uh, or a, 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 screen, a screenwriter, for instance. So it's kind of funny that we've ended up in this in this situation, uh, coming from such uh, gritty backgrounds to somehow more more fluffiness. But in the end, you know, I think the role of the game master has ultimately changed. And you can still have the gritty encounters, and that's where things like Pathfinder 2e shines over a system like 5e and why it exists. Um, but really, you're trying to add fun to your game. And a lot of people expect these narrative experiences. So what better way to add fun to a narrative experience than to add 
storytelling systems too. So to take uh, what Alo said <laughs> in the chat with um, a bit of uh, indulgement, I guess you could say, is that um, the ghost GM is is John here when I'm running a game is <laughs> other players that are also GMs that are in other games. Um, that's why we have game mastery. That's why there's gamer guilds in the first place. We're constantly talking about what to do. And even the new GMs, when they're first starting out, the first thing they're going to do is get on a forum, ask their friend for advice on how to run the game. And so there's always a ghost GM and it's, it's our buddies, their pals, and we're all giving each other advice on how to, how to run these situations. Because even we come if, up with... even if oh sorry go ahead. Go, ahead. Oh, go ahead I was saying even if um you know that ghost GM is in the same game you're playing one of the most crucial skills a GM can have is being able to separate game mastery from their player for the player experience um, and I think that when a player transit when a, someone who starts as a player transitions to a GM one of the first things one of the first skills they learn is as a player, being able to act as if they don't know what's happening in a way that steers things in the most interesting outcome for the game. Um, often, like, for instance, oftentimes, if I, as a player, have meta-knowledge of the campaign because I've collaborated with the GM in some way, um, I am going to more actively act out of my character's interest because I know that if I, A, if I act with the knowledge I have, it'd be cheating, and nobody likes to cheat it. And B, subconsciously, I know that acting in my character's best interest is actually going to result in the most uh, interesting outcome for the experience. I think that as a GM, you, you develop those kind of muscles where, like, you're like, you know, I want to rely less on my knowledge and more of letting shit play out the way that it happens, right? And you're you're more okay. You're more okay with things going afoul. You're more okay with, uh, or more encouraged to see interesting outcomes rather than winning outcomes. And mm. I think that that is something you learn as a game master just through sheer experience. And it's often Comes something that's crossed over into your player experiences as well. Um, I know in our Tagaseya campaign, I very very often make very suboptimal decisions. Not because it's the right decision, but it's because A, it's what my character would do, um, and B, I know that if I do this, it's going to be freaking fun. <laughs> the chaos is going to be fun. And the uh, what my character would do is such a fine line of there's an ex here's an example of it being used correctly. There's what my character would do in this situation. John's saying is I am sticking to role playing my character, mm -hmm. whereas instead of John's character isn't being asinine and derailing the game and then using that as a crutch and saying right. that their character would do. I know some people uh, tend to fall back on that. What's my character would do. And I figured I would just blame that real quick. Um, yeah, I think, I think that uh, what my character would do oftentimes if someone says what my character would do, um, what they really mean is no, that's what I would do. I just built my <laughs> character in a way that that lets me do that. It's basically like saying, like, I want to excuse my crap behavior. Right. That is literally what, and here we're, but it should be used the way John is using it. And I'm trying to highlight that because yeah. it doesn't get used enough. As John was using it, it was like, I'm being true to Nilkus yeah. being, you know, skinless, uh, furless, <laughs> raised like half old savage, you know, <laughs> traveling nomadic beasts. You went mute there. I couldn't hear you. No, I just said, I hope I'm not skinless. And I took a drink of. So. <laughs> Skinless, <laughs> furless, furless. Anyways, so some of the last closing stuff on conditions. Some of them are permanent. Now we we have planned to cover some of those permanent conditions in the future, but just to touch briefly on them, when you do permanent conditions, there's a lot more stuff that needs to be done. So you, as a GM, if you want to dish out lycanthropy, if you want to dish out vampirism, give um, them a way out. Give them the option of going back somehow, whether that's a quest series. No. Huh? Give them a window to, yeah. to, to escape from. And if they don't take it, that's on them. Yeah. A lot of a lot of the times the conditions are given due, due to wild encounters, random encounters, wandering monsters, whatever we want to call it. Those conditions are unfair. If the party goes in into a back alley and get, picks up a condition, that's their problem. Um, so 
the, the heavyweight that the GM used to do now is change how the hirelings, how the NPCs, so the town folk interact with that player, which means you need to start treating that. Um, they need to treat you differently, knowing if you're going to change or having heard you changing. And then, you know, for like vampires, it's more noticeable because you've got palette and skin color. Uh, but a cure is something that should be in the back of their minds, should always be available. They might not want it's to be They might be perfectly okay with thing. staying a werewolf or a vampire or what have you and be cool with it. Well, see, the werewolf has a perfect time frame of when the next full moon is. And then you deliver when that next full moon mm-hmm. is. And if they, if you know, you can't get to it before then, then removing lycanthropy is pretty darn difficult in general. Yeah. And the same thing goes with vampirism. They, they have a time limit of they're going to die or they need to drink blood to sustain and transform. And you, know, so you, you have the whole subversion or aversion to sunlight thing. Right. You're giving them, they still have their player um, control because you're telling them, hey, you have these options, you know? You don't have to drink the blood. You don't have to change. You don't have to convert. Or you have time before the next full moon comes. What are you going to do with that time? You're not just, wow, give, you know, it happens. That's why these diseases usually have incubation times. That's where it comes from in old 3.5 thing. So agency uh, is important. Agency is huge. But Um, I mean, these are also great ways to add quest quest lines to your game, side quest lines that... um... Absolutely. I'm all about weaving in quest lines into other things. Um, uh, Since I play a sandboxy game, I definitely like to play with the threads of fate. And certain things are going to be like the party has you know some general goals in a particular area and they don't seem interested in going in that area and you can kind of help give them reasons to go there and eventually there'll be so many reasons that like everybody in the party will be like hey we've got a bunch of stuff to do in this area they're going to want to go there Mm -hmm. and so you can kind of be like well you know the solution or a person who might have information on this is over there yeah it's um it's not necessarily railroading it's nudging um because you're giving the railroading would be if they you're forcing them and they have no other option but to comply and they're just you know on the tracks um listen okay let me give you guys a secret about game mastery even in the most sandbox or open world games or whatever you want to call it the game gm is still guiding guiding players i don't care railroading is only a problem if the players think it's a problem Behind the scenes, the game master is steering things and plotting things and messing with things. We are totally making a bunch of rail systems. Yeah. You're you're always on a rail system. you realize you're being railroaded or not, you are always being railroaded to some degree. But part of the game master's job is to cast the illusion of choice. That's the secret that all game masters share, is that we are still railroading. You just don't realize it. <laughs> so to, to capstone on the conditions, it doesn't always have to end in a TPK. Uh, your big bad only has such a, you know, a big stomach. Um, so even if they turn you all to stone, chances are there's going to be a way out of it. So you as a GM, if you're going to dish out a condition that can TPK the entire group, you have to be prepared for what comes next. Don't just plan, I want to use the doomed condition and then you have a tpk and everybody dies okay so what happens after that you need to be planning that if you're going to use that condition so i mean if you're feeling frosty and you want one pc to actually bite the dust that's good you need to talk to your party members ahead of time and be like you know they want to play a new build they want to chest out a new ancestry or class those are the pcs that are going to handle taking death a lot easier because they're going to be trying out something new otherwise you need to have that contingency plan. So I don't suggest you add in a condition if you're not prepared for what comes next. Yeah, I mean, just like anything, uh, whatever tools you use, consider the consider all the consequences and possibilities um, and be prepared for the worst. So we need to have a, John, we need to make a video about um, TPKs in general and yeah. not, not being focused on TPKs are bad and how what led us to here instead it needs to be what happens after yeah you know like we had a TPK what now I've actually it's... I've actually been planning a, a quick like three minute GM basics thing and then I was going to do a stream about it too with you and talk about it um yes we, we've we we've, we've 
hinted at it several times in the past that there are several ways, several tools that you can use as a GM to turn a TPK into a non-TPK. And I think that they're often underutilized and people think, oh, I killed the party. I guess that's it. When in reality, nah, you're the GM. You don't, you killed the party. Did they really die? You know, like. Maybe next time. Yeah. Like <laughs> there's, there's all kinds of ways out of that. You know, even if they did die. Okay. I, maybe I their soul's that- still lingering and they're, they're in some kind of uh, re- you know, soul realm where they have to, they're trying to get back to their bodies or something. Maybe they're not completely yeah. dead. Maybe, you know, some kind of magic interfered or something. There's all kinds of different things you can do depending on the scenario. Um, I, I think I did that in the Minds of Fandelver game. Do you remember the uh, the death? I the do, TPKs that yes. I, when you had, like, the, TPKs we thought it was flashbacks death. at first, but they were actually, like, yeah. I remember. Uh, so one of the players died, and everybody in the party was just devastated about that player dying. Uh, they decided to run away, and they went through a deadly trap, and they got flushed out to sea, and they just continuously rolled poorly, made bad decisions, and drowned. And... Um, the party was pretty devastated, and the the player was excited. They were like, cool, uh, you know, they took it really well, and they told the party they were going to come back next session with a kobold paladin. It was a, it was a kobold paladin, right? That's what, what they wanted to throw at us. And so the next session, the, the entire time I was in communication with this player, the next session, they introduced a kobold paladin, and I killed that player again. <laughs> and I think... I think John, like you had cracked at this point. You were like, you just killed this player like in two different <laughs> sessions. Like, I can't do this anymore. And then we brought them back and we showed that like, even though you killed the player, they went to the shadow realm and they came back. And this was all just a kind of like a diversion to kind of help build the suspense. And um I think you even know. like handed over the GM reins for him for a certain period of time too. I I let them I let them attack the entire party yeah. with a, like a level 10 shadow creature yeah. of their choice. Which throwing the reins of GM to another player, um, if you guys are friends and you guys are playing in games like that, something you should test out every now and then. It shouldn't be used maybe once in a campaign at most. Yeah. And um, don't do it, it with groups of people you're not super familiar with, because it can really recap it with friends. Um, yeah, we're coming up on time. We're a little over actually since we started a little early. Um, but chat has a condition that they wanted to, us to talk about. What was that? Oh, you're asking if chat had it? Um, there was anyone in, in chat who had a condition that we wanted to cover that we didn't cover. Doesn't look like it. I don't see anyone piping up. Um, just to reiterate, uh, we will be posting this on our YouTube and Odyssey accounts within the next couple days. Um, excuse me. We have... Um, uh, I'm actually working on some humanoid companion rules that kind of play along with the existing uh you know animal companion and undead or undead companion whatever it's called rules uh right now um i've been playing a lot of elder scrolls online and i'm really enjoying playing with the new companion system and i'm like you know there's not really a good mechanism for this and pathfinder 2e rules is written that i've that i've found um so i thought i'd homebrew one it's not it's not a not a huge uh system it's mostly reusing a lot of existing rules or just putting them together in unique ways um so hopefully have that out on the website before long uh, i've got most of it done at this point i see to play test a lot of it um but then let's see what else we got going on jack uh twitter's been booming well, so we've been trying to be more active on there of late um so you know you'll see us around there more often hopefully um, well we're talking about uh streaming eso on thursdays yeah, we're talking about doing a, maybe not every Thursday, but at least here and there, do an Elder Scrolls Online stream where we have, we do some of the quest lines and whatnot from a Game Master's perspective where we talk about, um, you know, what, what we found interesting about the quest from Game Mastery as well as, like, from a world-building perspective. Um, so those will be kind of something different, hopefully, that we think you'll like. Uh, we, we posted, we posted a thing, a question about it on Twitter, and it seemed to get a lot of a lot of good feedback and interest so we'll probably be doing that starting thursday uh, um, we are super stoked for gen con gen yes. con will be coming shortly we'll be doing some at least i'll be doing some extra streaming i'm pretty sure john and i will probably just be 
trying to like put out content like every night just yeah real quick heads up of what's happening at gen we still con enjoy the show too though so we don't want to get too strapped down with you know content creation and not going to enjoy the show itself so hopefully uh we'll be able to do both um, i'm bringing uh my camera with a new portable rig setup i have with like a mic and all that so hopefully we can get some good footage out of it hopefully to, hoping to find some other content creators we can kind of collaborate with while we're there um we'll see what happens the first time attempting this so We'll so, um, Alos, we'll probably have to talk about this either on the Reddit or the Discord. Um, I saw this on Reddit. Somebody had posted about this, and I had asked them for more information about it. I don't know what uh, Synthesia is, and I am looking forward to finding out what that is, because somebody else had already mentioned it. I'm actually not familiar with this either, so I'm definitely intrigued. I will do some digging on my own as well. Yeah. Definitely so, appreciate bringing it up, though. It'll be interesting. Like I said earlier, like and subscribe, and we'll say it again um, if you're on Odyssey or... Um, yeah, if you're on Odyssey, YouTube. toss that LBC our way so we can get our videos boosted more. Um, YouTube, like, subscribe, hit the bell notification icon, all that you're, stuff. If you're watching yeah, us on YouTube, don't forget we do this live on Twitch. So click the link on our YouTube to go to our Twitch so that you can follow us be uh, notified when we go live we're pretty yeah. consistent here with the sundays yeah. and uh sundays so that you can be participating in the chat with us so. it's an in real life condition okay this is gonna need <laughs> this, we're gonna need to talk about this one Definitely. all right so uh thank you guys so much till next time happy gaming